Welcome to Lead On Purpose. I'm James Lachlan, former seven-time world champion musician and now executive coach to global leaders and high performers. In every episode, I bring you an inspiring leader or expert to help you lead your life and business on purpose. Thanks for taking the time to connect today and investing in yourself. Enjoy the show. How much time do you invest in your brain? Well, look, our brain dictates so many things. It's our largest asset. We've got to look after it, right? But often we're putting things on our skin and we're doing all these other things that care for our bodies, but our brain dictates so much. I came across a product a wee while ago called Flow State, and it's made such a difference. And look, they offer functional mushrooms that sharpen cognition. They really boost energy and definitely strengthen immunity. And they actually use uh, one of their key ingredients is lion's mane, right? So lion's mane is popular among really peak performing athletes and those wanting an edge. It's known as the brain mushroom. And it's currently being studied extensively for its nerve growth factor potential as a means to ease the symptoms of Alzheimer's and for treating inflammation in the body. Now, look, the thing I love about these products They don't taste like mushrooms. You can mix them in with your tea. They're a great replacement for coffee. But I actually love the PM mushroom blend, the evening one. It really helps me sleep. And to know that my brain is getting extra nutrients is just next level. The one thing that's really important for me is what's in there. So they've tested heavily at Hill Laboratories for heavy metals, pesticide residue, microbials, and also at Massey University for active compounds. So I urge you, if you love your brain and you want to go the extra mile to nurture it, head on over to flowstate.nz and you can use the coupon code LEADONPURPOSE to get 15% off. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get home And I think, what am I eating tonight? It's the last thing I want to do. I don't know what to cook. I don't know what's in the cupboard or in the fridge. And it often leads to poor choices like ordering some takeaways. So recently, Caroline and I started eating green dinner table. And it's absolutely amazing. After a long day when I'm knackered, I know that when I get home, there's going to be a great recipe and all the ingredients I need right there in the fridge. And look, I absolutely love it. I've been doing it for several months and it means I don't have to think at the end of the day. And I just know that I'm going to get good, nutritious, wholesome food. And look, it's plant-based, which has so many benefits. So if you're a meat eater, perhaps you might want to start on maybe just three, like a three-day plan. So you've got three evening meals for you and your partner or you and your family, depending on what option you want to go for. But the food is delicious. It's so nutritious and it means we don't need to think And as leaders of families, teams, and organizations, what we put in our bodies is just so crucially important. So I urge you to go and check it out. And I want to give you 20% off your first order. So you can go to greendinnertable.co.nz and use the coupon code PURPOSE. Today's episode is slightly different. That's because it was recorded in front of a live audience. 
It's from one of the days of my high performance leadership program back in October 2022. Today's special guest is Ali Adams, and you're going to gain so many great insights from her. I want to take a moment just to say a massive thank you to our two platinum partners for the high performance leadership program, and that is VVV Real Estate and Brannigans. We sincerely appreciate your support. And just to let you know, if you're keen to come to our HPL live event in 2023, you can go and add yourself to the waiting list so you're the first to hear about it. We will likely sell out again very quickly. So if you'd like to be there, you will hear about it first. We will email everyone on that waiting list first and any of our existing clients. So head over to jjlachlan.com and you'll see that there's a leadership training tab. Please go there and you can add yourself to the list. Now, Ali Adams is the chief executive of Christchurch NZ. She leads the city's economic development agency with the support of six general managers who lead teams in pillars that each support a vital part of the agency's work. Ali has a background in economic development, having led New Zealand trade and enterprises work in Europe and before that in the South Island. She has also worked in marketing, tourism, sports leadership, spending four years as the domestic manager for New Zealand cricket. Ali is a powerhouse, and I'm so excited to see what she brings to the beautiful city of Christchurch over the coming years. So please enjoy today's show. And as I say, it was recorded live. So sit back and enjoy. So, no, I'm very humbled to be here and looking forward to um, to having a chat and hopefully sharing a few insights. And if, look, if one thing I say resonates, um, then that's a success for me. Hopefully there'll be a few things in there that, um, that, that make sense and feel like the right bit of insight at the right time for you on your journeys. Fantastic. Well, let's have a bit of fun. So I guess a great place to start is this. So when you think of leadership, what comes to mind for you when you think of that term leadership? So I think um, it's a huge word and it's a huge responsibility being a leader and um, it's something that doesn't sit comfortably um, when you first start out for many of us on our leadership journey. It's something you have to learn to live with. It's a bit like a coat you try on and kind of spend a bit of time with. And um, for me, the biggest shift in leadership was when I moved from you know, like if you think on the on your leadership journey, very often you're a doer when you first start work and then your first leadership role, you might lead one or two people that do the same job as you and it's pretty comfortable because you know what they do. And then maybe you lead a bigger team of people that do the stuff that you used to do and you're still reasonably comfortable because they're still doing the stuff that you do. The big shift as a leader for me is when you lead leaders and all of a sudden you're leading people who do things that you don't know what they do. So, and for me, that's where you really start to define what leadership is. And um, uh, I would define it in its rawest sense as really clear context, really clear light on the hill, giving that vision and that goal so that everybody can see the direction that you're pulling in, some really clear guardrails, and then letting people go. It's all about empowering people to be the best that they can be. And actually, if I think of um, probably the the, the biggest superpower I think I have. I don't know if people here may have done Strength Finders. Many of you will have done the, the Clifton Strength Finders. If you haven't, it's a great tool, bit of fun. 
Uh, my, my number one strength finder is individualization. And another way that I would explain that is it's very much about believing the highest thoughts of people and enabling them to achieve their way. Getting people to be able to deliver the best that they can be is what I think a truly great leader does. And it's not easy. You have to actually really invest a lot of time and effort in order to make that happen. It's quite draining. Being a leader is a lot of energy. Fascinating. And I want to look at your leadership journey because someone once said to me, hey, James, do you believe that leaders are born? (laughs) I'm like, well, I'm yet to meet an unborn leader. Mm. Everyone has to be born. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I believe it's a skill that we can develop. Some people have a bent and inclination towards leadership and influence with others. What about your leadership? Where did you start developing those leadership traits? Oh, that's a great question. I, um, I look at my leadership style now versus my leadership style in my 20s, and it is just chalk and cheese. I, I am a very different leader. And, and you have to kind of grow into the different leadership roles that you have. I tried very hard on my leadership journey, you know, like in a, in a, in a career. There's, it's, everything has a bell curve, doesn't it? Sorry, the scientists in me can't resist it, but everything has a bell curve. When you first start a job, you're in that kind of drinking from the fire hose bit. And then you get to that bit where it starts to flatten off and you can do it before you start to slip into apathy and then ultimately cynicism, which is when you should be absolutely leaving that role. Um, I try and stay on that upward bit. And then you're constantly growing. So that growth is such an important thing for me when I'm looking for a role. Um, And I look at the way that my leadership has developed. I think several things have happened during that time to me. I think the first is it hasn't happened by accident. So what you're all doing here today is so important. And it's so easy not to invest in yourself as a leader. Uh, But actually, the time that I have spent on courses like this, and I've been very fortunate, I've had a lot of fantastic... Uh, personal development investment through my career has been the best time I've ever spent because you cannot be a good leader if you don't know yourself. Your starting point has you've got to know what your strengths and your weaknesses are and every strength has a shadow side and you've got to understand how to dial those up and down in different situations and that starts with self-awareness and it starts with investing in yourself. Um, so it's not happened by accident. I think the other thing that I think is really interesting is a growth in confidence. It's taken, I was saying to James before, I'm 51 depressing but true and uh, only I would say in the last three or four years have I been comfortable issuing the phrase I am a leader I am a good leader I can even say that now and it's taken me a very long time to get I have that classic imposter syndrome that many of us have Um, but actually you know what I'm quite good at this and and it's really good to have that confidence it's not complacency but a confidence that you can do this is a really good place to start as a leader so that's probably been the two big insights from my journey so far. Thank you for sharing that. Not everyone can admit that imposter syndrome is something that they've <sighs> experienced. But I would say the greatest leaders, when you get talking to them intimately, they yeah, I didn't think oh. I could do that job. And I, I struggled to think I could be the person that could step into it. What was, the, what was the transition for you going, I'm not sure I can lead, I'm not sure I am a great leader, to no, no, I know who I am, I know what I stand for, and I'm a good leader. What happened there? So it probably happened, um, I, I had a bit of a kind of um, a leadership crisis, which I think many of us have. I, uh, I used to work for New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, central government, fantastic organisation um, and um, wonderful leaders and invested very heavily in me as a leader. And I, I, I made the mistake of setting my heart on a job 
a long way out. So New Zealand Trade and Enterprise has these cycles of jobs and I wanted to be um, the head of the European region. I'd set my, my goal on this and I kind of got over-invested and it's a really dangerous thing to do. Uh, and um, it, it was a very traumatic interview process that I went through and I started to really doubt myself. I started to doubt that I was the right person for it. I started to doubt that I was going to get it and I stopped being my authentic self. Um, and uh, that process was quite transformative for me. I happened to finish that process knowing I'd got the job after a very painful, long interview process. It's kind of quite broken. And then I went on a course similar to this. So um, NZTE ran a course called Leaders for Impact where we went and spent four days um, in the wilderness really just investing in ourselves. And that to me, all of a sudden, I was like, actually, you know what, they've, they've picked me for this job and I have got this job and now I'm going to prove that I can do it. And it was a bit like a switch went on. There was a confidence in me. I, I, I realized that a lot of the trauma that I'd gone through during this horrendous interview process, well, nearly all of it was of my own making. And that's quite liberating because when it's your own making, you can change it. You know, one of my favorite leadership insights is that you are your habits. So any, anyone that likes sports here, I'm a big NBA fan and there's a guy called Jeff Van Gundy. He's a, uh, used to coach the US basketball team and I was watching a game one day and he talked about how you are your habits. I used to bite my nails and I'm so proud. I just have to do this. I'm just doing this <laughs> kind of ridiculously proud of my nails because I, that's, I've controlled it. I remember one day being in, I, I was in Hamburg, having got this job in, Europe and I got in the shower one morning and classic old imposter syndrome was, hadn't quite gone away at this point. Still hasn't gone away, will never go away. Uh, but I was in the shower listing the top 10 things I hated about myself. Classic way to start the day. Always good. It's like, yeah, what do I hate about myself? God, I wish I wasn't so fat and I wish I got up earlier and I wish I was a bit fitter. I wish I didn't bite my nails. And honestly, I got to about number six and then realised, A, that this was not a great habit. So, which is good that I noticed it. But B, um, that actually they were pretty much all in my control. And that's quite a liberating thing as a leader. And all of a sudden when I realised that, I was like, actually, I think I probably can do this. So, yeah, that was probably a long answer to your question. No, that's incredible. But I managed to get my nails in. So. They look beautiful. Thank you. I love it. And now that you're leading leaders, so you've overcome this imposter syndrome, which ish. arguably ish. I think everyone will always have a, a level of that. You know, you look at the top five regrets of the dying so it was uh, Bronnie Ware who wrote this book. She's a palliative care nurse. And the number one regret of people on their deathbed is, I regret living my life based upon what other people yeah. think about how I'm living my life. Yeah. And imposter syndrome really ties into that. So now that you're leading leaders, you've overcome that. You've learned how to compartmentalize that and manage yeah. it. How do you empower others who are in the earlier stages of their leadership careers who are almost crippled by that imposter mm. syndrome? Mm. How do you lead them and empower them to think the way you think? Well, I don't necessarily want them to think the way I think. I want them to think the way that they think. But I do want them to um, do it with confidence. And I think um, I have – It's. I'm an extrovert. I like to talk. I'm, I think I have an answer to everything according to my husband. So he told me. So, um, uh, uh, but um, I've really learned to coach. And coaching is uh, – if you, if you can get one skill as a leader – Learn to coach. Learn to ask fabulous open-ended questions. Um, and link it with this second skill, which to me is trust your instincts. Now, if you can encourage people to trust their instincts and you can coach them 
then that is a very powerful combination. So I would say that good leaders have good instincts nearly always. You know, we all have our spidey senses. When you're recruiting someone and, yeah, they've ticked every box on paper and you know they could do the job, but actually it's just something. Try, don't ignore that, ever. So you'll be right. And you know what? If you're thinking it, someone else is thinking it. So what I always say to my team is, what, what's your gut telling you? What, what has your gut to? And I will always say, and, and what could you do about that? How have you not? Tell me how that went. Tell me a little bit about that meeting. So what are your thoughts? You know, it's, and, and, and by doing, people have all got the answers within. So, and the more that they come up with their own solutions, the more their confidence grows. And then you start to see that imposter syndrome start to uh, drift away a little bit. In parallel as a leader, don't, don't ignore the power of um, positive feedback. When someone does something great, let them know they've done something great. Because, you know, just like parenting, and there are so many. In fact, actually, I would say 90% of my leadership kind of insights come either from Ted Lasso, which if you haven't watched, watch. It's great. So, or from being a parent. Because there's a lot of parallels. So, and if you say something positive to one of your children, they're going to do that again. And you know what? That's true with people. People, we're really simple. You know, we want to do a good job. And if someone says you've done a great job, you're going to do it again. And then you start to trust yourself and that confidence will grow. And what's the opposite of that? So as a leader, if you're not taking a coaching approach where you're really eliciting information and being curious, what does that look like? And what, what have your experiences been of not being coached, but the opposite of that? So one of the most difficult periods in my career was towards the end of my time. I'm going to be really honest here, by the way. Please don't share anything. And I'm not, I'm not, I will never be described as enigmatic, much to my disappointment. So uh, what you see is what you get. So I'm going to tell you all my kind of um, dirty secrets here. I've just remembered we're on a podcast. Maybe I should be a bit careful. We can, we can take that bit off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, one of my most difficult times was towards the end of my time at NZTE. I, I had uh, my boss left and was replaced by someone who was a micromanager. Now that's, to me, that's really hard because uh, the most important thing for me is to feel trusted. I need to feel that people trust me. I need to feel that they think I've got it. And I find it very difficult when I'm micromanaged or over-questioned. And so to me, that's what it looks like. And that's what, you know, that, that really telling someone what they should do, that double-checking, um, asking mom, all of that stuff is is the total opposite. And that's just going to lead to imposter syndrome because people lose their confidence. When I started at Christchurch NZ, um, there was a lot of people who had become quite unconfident in their decision making. And I describe a couple of them a bit like hermit crabs. It's a bit like you can actually see that kind of like they put a claw out and kind of go, oh, no one chopped that off. Maybe I'll put another one out. It's kind of actually quite exciting to watch that unfurling. Um, and, uh, and often, you know, in your career, you'll come into a role where you're taking over from a leader that's had a really different style to you. And it doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just a different style to you. And that, you know, your, your team need to come with you on that journey. I believe we should all be taking shots. Yes, you heard me right. Every morning, I take a double shot of Nutrient Rescue. Reason being, well, the harmful Western diet of heavily processed food combined with our busy, stressful lives means that 60 to 70% of people are missing out on their five a day of fruit and veg. This micronutrient per diet has contributed to the modern epidemics of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and dementia. The studies prove it. Look, 87% of people who take the nutrient rescue shots reported feeling better within the first month. That's because 
100% of the ingredients in Nutrient Rescue products are 100% grown in New Zealand. But look, don't take my word for it. Give it a try yourself. Using the code PURPOSE, you will get a 15% discount. So head over to nutrientrescue.nz and that 15% discount goes across any of their superfoods, including their starter pack. So cheers to you joining me for some shots. Oscar de la Renta put it perfectly. Fashion is about dressing according to what's fashionable. Style is more about being yourself. And that's one thing I always try to do, is try to be myself, whether I'm interviewing a former head of state, hanging with my family on the weekend, or working with some of my incredible clients. I try to always just be myself as much as possible. And part of that is dressing accordingly. But every now and then, a special occasion will call for some special fashion. And I am by no means any expert on fashion. And that's why I'm delighted to partner with Munns. Munns is back and it's better than ever. Located in the beautiful Tannery Emporium on Garlands Road in Christchurch. It offers a huge range for men with suits for hire and sale, ties, jeans, waistcoats, hats, sunglasses and more. So for all of your menswear needs, head along and check it out at munns.co.nz. And in terms of leadership style, so we've got all these terms, affiliative, democratic, autocratic. When you think of a style, do you have a style that you lean to or do you feel that it's more situational leadership? A a bit of both. Uh, I I love situational leadership. Um, I'm trying to think of things that I can say that are okay on a podcast. I had a... (laughs) Um, uh, I do do quite a lot of situational leadership and I've learnt this the hard way. So I'm going to, uh, um, uh, I worked with someone who was quite an, um, I don't know if I can use the word alpha male, the phrase oh, alpha male. Of course you can, okay. go for it. Quite an alpha male. And my leadership style tends to be quite vulnerable, open, really happy to say when I've made a mistake, really comfortable kind of owning it, you know, I'm not, not kind of trying to prove anything. Uh, I found that with this particular person and actually often with alpha males that doesn't work. It's seen as a bit of a weakness. And uh, so I have adapted my style. And it was funny, the other day, a guy came into our office for a meeting and he's classic alpha male. And one of my team sat with me and, and she came out of the meeting afterwards and said, who the hell were you? <laughs> and I was kind of like, yeah, it was very, very deliberate that I dialed up certain aspects of my leadership style with that person, because actually that's how you need to get the credibility and respect there, or that's how I judged it. And that comes back to trusting your instincts, actually. You know, like your instincts tell you what the right thing to do is, so just don't ignore them. I often think of it like a quiver of arrows. I don't know if I, – I often have this kind of visual in my of a quiver of arrows, and I think, which one am I going to pull out? Actually, I know I'm going to pull out that one. <laughs> and it's kind of great, you know, actually. It's really helpful with the imposter syndrome thing. So I love that, and – Often we can be boxed in in terms of, oh, you're a democratic leader, you're affiliative. Yeah. It's nice to know that actually successful leadership can be yeah. situational and we can move as required. Yeah. I think COVID, if anything, has taught us that yeah. we need to be flexible. Yeah. yeah. Now, Christchurch NZ, let's chat a little bit about that. So I guess first, you know, what is Christchurch NZ? And then we'll unpack when you walked in as a new leader to an existing company, what were your greatest challenges? So what is Christchurch NZ? So Christchurch NZ is uh, fully council-owned. So we're, we're a council 
control entity. Um, and we are the economic development agency for Christchurch. So in short, we attract people to Christchurch to make it a more prosperous place for people that live here. We bring wealth into the city. And that might be by attracting visitors. It might be by attracting businesses, investors, immigrants and workers, major events, business events. We do a whole heap of stuff. But essentially, we're attracting wealth to the city for the benefit of all. Um, uh, what were my biggest challenges? Uh, quite a few. One was, uh, so Christchurch NZ is, uh, is one of those organisations, a bit like NZTE, where it's very purpose-driven. It's cause-driven. So our salaries are disappointingly not enormous. So uh, because we're a ratepayer-funded organisation. And so most people that come there come there for other reasons. They come there because they care about giving back. They care about the cause. Uh, now, that's a fantastic thing as a leader because you've got the opposite of apathy. There's nothing worse as a leader than coming into an organisation where people really don't care. What's that horrible word that I heard the work where people turn off at work? I can't remember. It's a new buzzword. Anyway, where people literally... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so... Um, uh, so I, I had this amazing group of people who really cared. The downside of that is they say yes to everything. And so we were an inch thick and a mile wide, and we still do say yes to too many things. Um, and we'd become that agency at council where, oh, they'll do that, they'll do that, yeah. So uh, we were really not delivering as well as I would like. So I was very keen to, I called it tidying up our blurry edges. So being really clear about what we do and what we don't do and about empowering the people in my team to say no um, and making it safe for them to say no. So because we have some really strong stakeholders and uh, one of the things I've learned in my transition from central government to local government is central government's actually quite unified. So uh, the, it, you, you get really one voice. In local government, that kind of parochialism and you go to present to the councils and people are very, each councillor is very passionate about what's going on in their ward. And so, you know, for example, if we're talking about doing some urban development, you know, why aren't you doing something in Phillipstown? Why aren't you doing something in Rickerton? Why aren't you doing, it's like, actually, we've got $18 million. It's a lot for urban development. So you've actually got to manage those, those no's and you've got to enable your team to say no in a way that is acceptable to your stakeholders without losing them along the way. So that was probably the biggest challenge. I think the second challenge I had was my leadership team needed to focus on the right things. My leadership team uh, was very much in the weeds, uh, very focused on dealing with operational things. And um, uh, it was, it's quite important that, 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 that we stepped up a level to create that space for the people below to be able to feel like they're experts. Um, and also for us to think about the direction of travel of the organisation, it very much felt like a, a leadership team where people came in with their functional hat on. And so very much getting people to take that hat off and think about actually what's the best. They were probably the two biggest mm. challenges we faced. That's huge. Like, so boundaries, like enforcing those oh, boundaries, yeah. but also being able to sit and detach from everything in the weeds, as you yeah. said. So I know there's so many other leaders in the room right now that are busy being busy and yeah. keeping things moving. There's been so much challenge during COVID, now post-COVID, the economy doing what it's doing. So how does one, while there's busyness happening, actually take a team and go, hey, let's breathe, let's sit up here and let's look at it whilst things are still being maintained here. How did you manage to achieve that? So I think the first thing was leading by example. I say, I don't need to see that. Why are you showing me that? Stop. I don't, I don't need to see every media release that goes out. I don't need to see 
every board paper? Why, why is that board paper, you know, from you rather than the subject matter expert? So actually just leading by example was a, was a very big part of it. Um, and then leaning into a couple of quick wins. So we had an event, um, that we had for a long time. It was a, a, a major event that someone had said they wanted to host here in Christchurch and, and, um, uh, because we're cause driven and we're nice, we'd said, Oh, we'll try, we'll try, we'll try. And we'd done a bit of a feasibility study that had showed us that this thing was going to cost us a fortune. It was going to be really an enormous amount of money and was clearly never going to happen. But we hadn't really said no. And so we, uh, managed all our stakeholders. We told everyone we're going to say no and why before we did it. And we checked everyone that had kind of been bought on this journey with us. And then we wrote our letter saying no. And it went down fine. And all of a sudden everyone kind of went, Oh. Oh, that's okay. We said no, and that worked, and that started to lift it. Um, I think the other thing that we did was um, um, invite. You know, I, I think I think leadership teams are often seen as a bit of an ivory tower, and people don't know what you're discussing and doing in there, and that can kind of cause some sort of cultural challenges. So we were very transparent. So we invited every quarter, I invite someone from the team to come and sit on our leadership team. And they just become a full member of our leadership team every quarter and it rotates. And we choose people that are, we have, I've introduced a, a talent matrix so that we can start to look at um, our it, talent from within. We can start to make sure that our performance development is really tailored to where individual people are. Um, and that kind of started to remove some of the the gossip about what we were and weren't discussing, some of that frustration. And when the culture starts to, sh- I mean, it's such a cliche that culture eats strategy for breakfast, but it really, really is true. You've got to get that culture shifting. You've got to get people to really believe that they are valued and that the work they do is heading in the right direction. And then you can start to really shift it. But leading by example probably is the, is the biggest thing that we do. It's amazing. And I hear it's a shift from me to we. Yeah. And it's us, you know, versus them. To like, it's it's us. We're in this together. So, in terms of a sense of belonging, so I, I really think any team, whether it's in a, a sports team or a company organization, their success or their winning or you know achieving results is directly in correlation to everyone's personal meaning that's attached to being a part of that team. Their sense of belonging. Yeah. At Christchurch NZ, or even in another area that you've worked and led, how do you create that sense of belonging for your people? We spend a lot of time at work, right? There's a guy called Wayne Norrie, good guy. He drew a really terrifying graph a few years ago. And as I said, I'm 51, so I'm at the wrong end of this, right? He drew a graph where it was like 24 hours and, I don't know, 90 years. And then he drew a line. He said, well, that's all gone. <laughs> so, and then he drew the amount that you're asleep and then the bits that you're retired and potentially not able to move much. And there's this tiny little box in the middle that's left of your life. And most of it, you're at work. And it was quite a moment for me. I was like, actually, you've got to love what you do. You have got to enjoy work. Nobody, you know, it, 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 you've got to enjoy it. And so you've got to have a bit of fun. I think that's really important. So, and people are human. People do business with people. So when I first joined um, Christchurch NZ, I wanted to know who I work with. And we have about 95 employees. I've had a one-on-one with every single person. And it's really funny. They all turn up with a book to make notes. So, and I'm just like, uh, I'm just going to ask you whether you've got any chickens and what you like to do on a Saturday. And so it's like, and it's great, you know, because I actually care. I want to know who they are. Um, and I've finished those one-on-ones now and I'm just starting again because they're so energizing. For me as an extrovert, they're gold. So I'm just going to, we're just going to go round and round and round. And, uh, and, and people really feel heard. 
And the moment you've got that, people actually, they're like, actually, she cares about me. You know, it takes me 25 minutes to get a coffee because I stop at every desk on the way to the office. And and I'm sure Hannah works in our office. She'll probably, I'm very loud. You know when I'm in the office. Now, I'm not saying that's the only type of leadership style, but actually being a visible leader and being human is so important in getting people to love what they do and enjoy coming to work. You know, I know that my team are proud of me and I know that they're proud to work for Christchurch NZ. And part of that is because I'm one of them. You know, I represent them. And and that's really important. I think um, you can't underestimate the power of being a visible human leader. Mm. Uh, and I think when you talk to leaders and they talk about this lonely at the top thing, so a lot of leaders will come and say, James, I'm actually quite lonely at the top. Well, the, the more I've thought about that is if, if you're feeling lonely, then jump off that big high chair you're sitting on, get out of your corner office, exactly right. get amongst your people, uh, rub shoulders, get to know them. And so it sounds like that's exactly really what you're doing is you're getting amongst your people. Exactly. And it's energising for you yeah. as a leader. Honestly, I, I get such a kick of work. I go, God, I didn't even know you were doing that. You know, a lot, we have a staff meeting every couple of weeks and it, it runs itself. The staff, uh, you know, I, I don't drive that agenda. Things come up at that meeting and I just sit there going, whoa, that's so cool. We've got such cool people. And that's them. you know, you don't need to know what's going on. You just need to enable it to happen. Um, and and that, that to me is, it, it's a win-win. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say one of the biggest topics that comes up at the minute is this whole great resignation. Mm-hmm. Why are people leaving? Mm-hmm. Why can we not keep talent? Mm-hmm. There's such churn. People are leaving for money. What do you believe about culture and retaining good staff? Like, how do we keep great staff? Well, I think the first answer is you can't always, and that's okay. Um, I have come to terms with that the hard way. You know, it's hard. You can't always keep everyone you want to. Um, uh, and you can't always get everyone that you want to when you're recruiting. And that's okay. Um, uh, how can you keep them? I think you can make people feel really valued and really heard and really invested in. So at NZTE, Pete Crisp was my CEO. NZTE is a great guy, fantastic leader. Um, and he always used to say, look, we can't, um, we can't pay you the big bucks, but we can guarantee that you'll leave this organization with a better CV than you came into it with. And I have that in my mind. That's a gift that I can give to everyone that works for me or for us at Christchurch NZ. Um, uh, and it's a question of trying to make sure that you really tailor that personal development to what they need. So if I come back to the talent the talent management, um, if you haven't got one of these, to me it's the best tool I have, a little nine-box matrix, the old nine-box matrix, So which basically has um, potential on one side and performance along the other. So you can Google them. There's plenty of them. You're like your star and you're ready for, ready for promotion in here and you've got your underperformers. You don't want anyone in there. But, or if you do, you need to move them up or out. But then you've got people elsewhere. Now, if you're down in the bottom right where you are a very high performer, but you're not ready for, you don't want to move. We've all got these in our organization. They're really important. They're people that have been there 25 years doing the same job and they love it and they do a really great job. It doesn't mean they don't want to grow doesn't mean they don't deserve to be invested in. It's just different. So what can you do to invest in people like that to make sure that you retain them and that they feel valued and that they feel like you care? And so these models are really, for me, really useful because they, they, they give you really practical ways of being able to think about, you know, maybe it's a secondment, maybe it's actually, uh, you know, what are the things that that person might be looking for? They're going to mentor someone within the organisation or learn a language or whatever it might be that floats their boat. 
because that's actually what really va- what we all just want to feel like we're contributing and that we're valued. Again, when you look at the human needs psychology, you want to feel valued, yeah. you want to feel connected, yeah. uh, some degree of certainty around your place in whether it's uh, an organisation or in your family. Yeah. And I guess because you spend so much time yeah. with your staff one-to-one, you actually do know their needs more so than yeah. imagining what they want. You're in amongst the asking those questions yeah. about their aspirations professionally and personally. Yeah, and I think, um, as a, here's a, an, uh, another, uh, for me, I think, something that I've learned about myself, something I did quite naturally, but I had a, a wonderful coach when I was in the UK and, um, and, and she unlocked this insight for me, which is uh, about the power of alchemy as a leader. So I'm a, I'm a chemist by background, and it's very typical in England that you do a degree in something that's got nothing to do with business and then end up in business. So I did a degree, degree in inorganic chemistry. Um, and there's a little bit of me that's still a bit of a tragic scientist. Um, and, um, and I honestly think very deliberately as a leader about the alchemy of putting people together. So when I was in Europe, I had a, um, a, a particular, um, leader, uh, in Southern Europe who was not particularly getting on with one of my leaders in Northern Europe. It was just, they, they were always clashing at leadership meetings. There was a bit of tension, a bit of conflict there. Now, conflict excites me because conflict is innovation, right? For all agreeing with each other, nothing's changing. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. There's something interesting there. What would happen if I put them on a project together? So I very deliberately gave them a project together, knowing that it would probably blow up, which it did, (laughs) obviously, and then that you pick the pieces up and help them manage through that conflict. And honestly, the magic that happens when you do that is incredible. So, So that kind of very deliberate alchemy as a leader, I think, is quite a powerful tool. So if you always be looking and watching and noticing... Um, and think, well, gee, that bit of, a little bit of them with a little bit of them on a little bit of that project. What happened there? And it won't always work, but it's um, it's quite fun to be experimental. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds a bit like Machiavellian, and Dylan's like, mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of people that could relate to that. Yeah. And you talked a little bit about micromanaging. None of us like to be micromanaged. Let's face it. So, if you're new and you're, you're walking into an organisation and you're not the leader, and you don't want to be micromanaged, what has to happen for you, you to have that level of you know, trust from your leader so you're not micromanaged? What are the ingredients uh, that, that have got to be put together before you can work independently and autonomously? So, uh, so I will have a crack at answering them. My instinct is to say, what do you all think? So, because actually that is, that is exactly the kind of question I would say to my team. How, what, you know, you, if you want that trust, how are you going to get there? What have you tried? What's worked, what hasn't? So, so actually, you will all have the answer to that question within. Um, what I would do, absolutely, is I would, I would um, prove by um, being able to deliver. And then if I felt that the boundaries were being crossed, I would very openly and honestly share how I was feeling. There's a man called Edgar Papke. It's a, I don't read business books ever, but I have kind of skimmed this one. Uh, it's called The Elephant in the Boardroom. And Edgar Papke is a, a wonderful man, and he talks about conflict quite a lot. Um, and and he, he talks about conflict being basically just where there's a difference of opinion or a miscommunication. And, and, and uh, it's, this is a really great tool, particularly when you're talking up. So if you're going to your boss to raise something that's not quite working for you. Um, and what he talks about is the power of actually just saying what your intention is. So you start by saying, hey, look, my intention is for us to work really well together and for me to be able to deliver so well that you don't feel that, you know, you need to get involved, whatever it might be. You make it very safe for that person to have the conversation. And then you share your truth. 
And this is the key. You use language. So I'm probably teaching you all to suck at But you use language like, I feel. When you do this, I feel. When you do that, it makes me think. Or, you know, you don't pass it. You don't say you're really a, a micromanager or, you know, you're really, def- you attack me when you do that. She says, it just makes me feel a bit um, like you don't trust me or a bit, you know, it, use the, your truth because it's actually something they can't argue with. If you're feeling that, then it's true. And then this is the hard bit. You then say, what's the truth for you? And that's where you actually hear some things you might not like. Your manager might say to you, actually, it's because you had 25 spelling mistakes or you always do this or you always do that. And you, you might hear some things that actually start to help you understand why they're not trusting you to do this. But that's when the magic happens because then you know. Mm. Then you can start to move forward. So that's what I would do. But um, everyone will have their own answer to that. No, thank you for sharing it. And I, I absolutely agree in that. When someone says, I feel, like, we have no right to challenge no. how someone feels. No. But what we can do is, uh, behind the feeling is a thought, mm. and we can challenge people's thoughts, mm. and we can engage and, and converse around what thinking is driving that feeling. That's right. Yeah, and be curious mm. to do that. I think, I, to me, it's a very liberating tool, the, um, the Edgar Papke model, and it's really simple, but it just it diffuses tension into a conversation because 99.9% of the time it's just a miscommunication. Mm, 100%. Mm. And for you personally, what has been your greatest leadership challenge over the last few years? Um, oh, look, there's lots of them and I love that. I love that there's lots. So I'm not going to say COVID. Actually, I think probably my, my most difficult challenge was, was I closed an office um, um, and I, I closed. So I, when I went to Europe, I was based in Hamburg um, in the consulate there and we had a team of 12 and it was an underperforming team and I knew it was an underperforming team and I knew that people had avoided looking at the fact that this team wasn't delivering. And it wasn't that the people hadn't been great because they probably had been. They just kind of perhaps the organisation had moved forward at a pace that, that, that this team hadn't. And so um, I, I decided to, that the best thing was to close that office and to, to move a smaller team up to Berlin. And it had a big impact on a lot of people's lives. And it's very challenging if you're a people-driven, heart-driven kind of leader. Um, and I remember very clearly a moment where after we'd done it, it, it so we sort of we planned it very carefully. Uh, uh, there was an awful lot of background went into it. And I'm very, very proud of it. It actually is something that went very well. Um, but I do remember that moment where um, you talked about the loneliness of being a leader. It was uh, the Wednesday, the week after. The, we'd, we'd, we'd had the conversation the week before, and it was the week after. And I was in the office, and I was in the office a bit late, and people kept coming past my desk saying, oh, you know, oh, oh, I'm going home now. I'm off to um, have dinner with a friend. And someone else would come back. I'm just off to, I'm off to the supermarket. And they must have all been going, is she ever going to leave? And I didn't know that. So they were all kind of, well, yeah, fine. Mostly they've all gone. I jump in the car. My husband picks me up, we drive around the corner and there's my entire team at the pub. And, and, it, and, it, and it's a very confronting thing as a leader. My kids said, oh, mum, that's your team. And I was like, yep, yep. And you've got to keep going, right? That, that's a big grown-up moment. That's your big girl's pants are on that day because you know that they're all going, what a bitch. So because you are to them. And that's okay. We've all had those people in our lives. But actually that was probably pivotal but very important. And, you know, you asked me what the toughest leadership challenge is. They're the best. No pressure, no diamonds. So you think about job interviews that you go for. You don't talk about all the stuff that went easily. You talk about the great stuff that went wrong. And even as it's going wrong, you kind of go, oh, this is going to be a good dinner party story. (laughs) You know, gobble them up. They're great. Collect them. They're the things that are going to 
make you the leader that you are. You know, if it all goes really well, then you're not growing. Mm, I love that. And let's just take a moment uh, before we pass it over to q and I'm going to pass it over for a little bit. If anybody wants to ask any questions, we'll bring a mic out. Uh, but to be such a high-performing leader and to have the ups and downs and the roller coaster that is working uh, as a leader, how have you managed to balance the family side of things? <laughs> uh, you should probably ask my husband that and he would probably say, I haven't. <laughs> um, uh, I, I know myself quite well. And I think that's quite important. I know my triggers. I know when I am burning out and I'm quite good at stopping and um, taking the time I need to recover. I, I don't manage my hours. I manage my energy and I'm very, you know, that for me that works. So I, I do work long hours um, and that's difficult, um, but, but I try and gobble little bits wherever I can. Oh, I'll have my nails done at three in the afternoon and not feel guilty about it, you know, because I know that I'll work till 10 o'clock three days that week. Um, what else do I do? I, um, I'm very fortunate. I have an amazing husband who uh, runs the family for us as a team, and that's um, amazing. I'm very lucky to have that. I don't think I could have done that without him to be able to do that. Um, and I, um, I try and make, um, make the most of the downtime I've got. I know what is my good mindful downtime. I have some terrible guilty pleasures. I love Love Island. That's great. <laughs> so I love true crime podcasts. I like to walk a lot and garden. And I kind of just try and, you know, give my, my brain is either on or off. That's me. Everyone's different. But for me, uh, it, it's either fully on or I'm lying on the couch like a, cabbage i love it that's great and look before we do hand it over to q a if we were to fast forward to the end of your life many many years into the future i hope yeah. we all hope <laughs> and a loved one in your family uh, or a close friend who's very young um they could be five or six years old and they come up to you and they say ali how can i lead my life on purpose what would your wisdom or insights be for them it's a really good question. And when we did the um, NZTE, the four days away, we were asked to visualise our 80th birthday and do the same. It's a very, very, very powerful exercise. Um, what would I say? I would say um, be kind to yourself. Don't accept what you're great at, uh, but know that it has a shadow side. Um, so it's that scale. Think I'm explaining this very poorly, but there's something about learning to love yourself and the things that you're great at. I don't try and change them. You know, I am a loud, noisy pain in the ass. That's that's okay. That's you know, it's like I'm okay with that. It for lots of people it works, and lots of the time it's fine, and other times it doesn't. And that's good for me to be aware of, and I want to be aware of it, and I want to be able to tone it down at times that I need to, but I don't want to change that. And, and there's an acceptance of who you are and the fact that your style is your style. Don't try and change it. Try and leverage your strengths and minimise those weaknesses. That would be probably my biggest piece of advice. Love yourself a bit. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. Let's put our hands together for Ali Adams. Thank you. That's amazing.
Thanks for tuning in today and investing in your own personal leadership. Please hit that subscribe button and I'd love if you'd leave me a rating and review. I've got some amazing guests lined up for you in the coming weeks. And leaders, it's that time to get out there and lead your life on purpose.